Hello, and welcome back to the show, all my goats, ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's October. I know it's a favorite month for a lot of us. I think that goes back to some evolutionary uh, type stuff where I think the harvest time is just something that we as modern humans just sort of have in us now that this is a time of sort of reflecting on the year and uh, little celebrations of the bounteous seasons, preparing for the winter and getting ready for the changes that are coming around. I'm doing my part to stay spooky. I got a little ghost tattoo today for a little uh, flash tattoo for breast cancer awareness. And... um been working on hopefully a podcast i can get out before halloween a little bit of a spooky tale that i've been working on but today we're going to be talking about witch trials we're going to talk a bit about salem and yeah so let's just uh get right to it i guess stuff specifically about Salem that I have. Um, We're just going to be talking about witch hunts, some of the ways that they devised tests for witches that I thought was really interesting. And I know it's a really great allegory, but I thought it was interesting that there's actually a lot of hot spots for witch hunting still today in places like India, Papua New Guinea, parts of the Amazonia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, there were numerous tests that were devised to determine if a person was a witch, possibly the most common being the swimming test. And the basic idea behind this test was that because witches were of the devil and had not been baptized, The water would reject them, and despite being stripped of their clothing and bound with weights, they would still float. So a rope was usually fastened to the person as well, so if they did sink, they could be pulled out. Of course, this wasn't really a foolproof safety precaution, and many people drowned accidentally. The swimming test comes from a more literal swimming test that occurred in earlier times, where those accused of certain crimes would be thrown into a rushing river. The main idea being that the fate of the accused was essentially left for God to decide. The custom was banned in the Middle Ages but re-emerged as a witch test in the 17th century, until it slowly fell out of fashion towards the end of the 18th century. In 1710, a Hungarian woman named Dorko Boda failed the swimming test and was beaten and burned at the stake. That's around the time that... um, these types of things kind of fell out of fashion, at least in that part of the world. So next we have the touch test, and for the touch test, you need to have the victim, 
So these were the people that were usually experiencing strange fits and doing all types of weird behaviors. Then sometimes attributed to mass hysteria, although some historians uh, speculate uh, about a various amount of neurological conditions that could possibly be to blame. However, at the time, it was the popular belief that someone experiencing this type of behavior had most likely been cursed by witchcraft. The devil's magic. Um, so it was thought that a touch from the person that had originally placed the curse would remove it. And so the, the touch test was basically like, touch this person, and if they stop doing the fits, then you're the witch, and they're cured. So, sort of a win-win for everyone but the witch, I guess. Touch tests played a famous part in the 1662 trial of Rose Colander and Amy Denny, two elderly English women charged with bewitching a pair of young girls. The children had been suffering from fits that left their fists clenched so tightly that even a strong man could not pry their fingers apart. But early tests showed that they easily opened whenever Colander or Denny touched them. To ensure the reaction was genuine, the judges had the children blindfolded and touched by other members of the court. Of course, the girls unclenched their fists anyway, which suggested that they were faking. But this was not enough to prove the woman's innocence because Colander and Denny were both hanged anyways. So you'll notice with a lot of these tests... um. There's sort of the thing where it's like, yeah, well, maybe they passed the test, but they're a witch anyways. Or maybe they passed the test, but they're already dead, so... Oh, well. The prayer test usually involved those accused of being witches reciting the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes it was other biblical verses as well. This was under the assumption that those who had made a pact with the devil would be unable to do so. Of course, of course, illiteracy rates were especially high at the time, and people were literally reciting Bible verses with the threat from their life. Of course, even if you could recite the Lord's Prayer or Bible verses perfectly, this didn't ensure your innocence, as we learned in the Salem Witch Trials, when George Burroughs flawlessly recited the Lord's Prayer on the gallows just moments before being executed by hanging. Of course, this was said to be a devil's trick, and the execution proceeded as planned. The witch cake is our next test. Shout out to Aleister Crowley. This one is especially gross, y'all. Uh, witch cakes were essentially a strange form of counter magic. A sample of the victim's urine mixed with rye meal and ashes were baked into a cake and was then... <laughs> usually fed to a dog, <laughs> um, the witch's familiar animal counterpart. Um, it was usually a dog, I guess. But yeah, a witch's familiar is just supposedly their magical um, companion. This was with the hopes that the creature would reveal the name of the sorcerer that had cursed the victim. In the Salem Witch Trials, Tichuba prepared a witch cake to find the person responsible for cursing Betty Paris and other children. Of course, the witch cake failed to work, and that was 
sort of used against Tetrabla because um, she was trying to use magic again. Of course, Tetrabla was one of the people... I keep saying, of course, so freaking much in this episode. I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, Tetrabla was one of the people that admitted to it right away, and all the people that admitted um, to witchcraft in Salem were spared, and all the people that did not admit to witchcraft were actually the ones that were killed. Uh, next we have the witch's mark. So I talked about this a little bit in the last episode. Some of this stuff is a little bit of a recap from the last episode, I guess, where I did talk about witch hunting and King James. The witch's mark, or the devil's mark, was thought to be a place on the body that the devil suckled after making a pact with witches, giving them magical powers in exchange for their souls or their allegiance. Witch's marks could be anything from an extra nipple, a mole, tattoo, or birthmark, and at the height of the witch hunts, desperate villagers would often try to cut off or remove these types of identifiers, oftentimes only for their scars to be mistaken for a devil's mark anyways. The marks were thought to sometimes be hidden, but could be found. Witch hunting pamphlets and guidebooks taught that to find these marks you could use a specially designed needle. Examiners would repeatedly proke and prod at the accused until they found a spot on the body that responded the way that they wanted. Usually they were looking for somewhere on the body that wouldn't bleed when it was poked with this certain kind of needle. In England and Scotland, there were people actually employed as prickers. And I really want to believe this is where we get like the insult, like, you stupid prick. Um... <sighs> I, l I like to think the etymology goes back to to this, but I have nothing to corroborate that. And it's probably like more phallus, um, if I'm being honest. But I thought it was a funny thought. So anyways, there were also charging or incantations, as they were sometimes referred to. These charges were famously used in the 16th century witch trial of Alice Samuel and her husband and daughter who were accused of bewitching five girls from the wealthy Throckmorton family. So this also happened in Salem. During the proceedings, judges forced the Samuels to demand that the devil release the girls from their spell by stating, As I am a witch, so I charge the devil to let Mistress Throckmorton come out of her fit at this present. When the possessed girls immediately recovered, the Samuels were found guilty and hanged as witches. And so this brings us to Salem. This is as the craze of And while the craze of witch hunting that had spread throughout Europe was coming to a close, the peak of witch hunting in the United States came to Salem, Massachusetts. Massachusetts was the first colony it was made up of Puritans that were coming to the Americas seeking religious freedom. Now, this is kind of ironic considering how the Puritans seem to treat anyone that is an outsider. In 1689, English rulers William and Mary started a war with France and the American colonies. So you've probably heard of it. This is known as King William's War to the Colonists. It ravaged regions of upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec. 
sending refugees into the county of Essex and specifically into Salem Village in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This caused strain on Salem's resources, along with growing contentions among families controlling the port of Salem and those that relied on agriculture. Samuel Paris became the village's first ordained minister in that same year and was described as someone that was very strict and greedy. The Salem witch trials were perpetuated because of a if-you're-not-with-us-you're-against-us type groupthink by Puritan Christians who at the time were determined to rid their town of everyone that didn't buy into their specific religious narrative. Every suspect that denied their involvement in witchcraft was put to death, and every suspect that admitted to it was spared. More than 200 people were accused of practicing the devil's magic, with both men and women alike being accused equally. So this kicked off in January of 1692, when Paris's daughter, Elizabeth, aged 9, and niece Abigail Williams, age 11, began to have strange fits. They were said to have screamed, thrown things, uttered peculiar, uttered peculiar sounds, and contorted their bodies into strange positions. Uh, sounds like kids just being kids. But apparently a visit from a doctor concluded that their afflictions were supernatural and that they had to be cursed, which of course... And they had been cursed, which was obviously the work of a witch. While it is often written off as a case of mass hysteria, the cases of the Salem witch trials were probably more likely a case of some people taking out their differences on a group of people that was a lot more easily manipulated, I guess. Um, they sort of preyed on the weak people. So you see that when the first people are um, accused, it is a vagrant uh, lady that is old and impoverished, and then the first one, Tichibuth, the Caribbean slave. So, we know that several people were put to death for their supposed witchcraft, but you might not have known that there were other punishments implemented in Salem as well for people that were misfortunate enough to be accused. So this wasn't even if you were accused and they proved that you were innocent, they could still, uh, the government could still confiscate the accused person's land or home, but, as we will see with Giles Corey, these things were valuable enough that at least one man was willing to die for them to remain among his family members, rather than see them taken from him while he was alive. Another interesting fact is that not only humans were accused of witchcraft, but in a few specific cases, animals were accused as well, with at least two dogs, uh, two cats, and I believe a mouse... Uh, I don't know, a handful of other animals being implicated as well. The animals were thought to be witches' familiars. Uh, the two dogs were shot, with one being found innocent shortly after he was killed. I try to look about how they 
found the details for how the dog was innocent or guilty, but I didn't really see anything about that. At least two cats were accused of being witches when Tichuba, the first to be accused, stated that she was being stalked by a black cat and a red cat who threatened that they would hurt her if she did not hurt the children. Another girl, Anne Putnam, age 11, began experiencing similar episodes. And on February 29th, with much pressure from the magistrates, Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, the girls blamed three women for their afflictions. So Tichuba, the Paris family Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly impoverished woman. All three women were bought before the local magistrate and interrogated for several days, starting on March 1st, 1692. Osborne claimed innocence, as did Good, but Tichuba confessed, The devil came to me and did bid me serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a black man who wanted her to sign his book. She admittedly, uh, she admitted that she signed the book and said there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. All three women were put in jail. The seeds of paranoia had been planted, and the accusations were a steady flow in Salem for the next few months. Charges came against Martha Corey, a local member of the church in Salem, which greatly concerned the community because they thought if someone in, in high esteem of the Puritan community could be a witch, then even anyone could. They questioned Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy, and her Timothy and her timid answers were construed as a confession. The questioning got more serious in April when Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and his assistants started attending the hearings. Dozens of people from Salem and other Massachusetts villages were brought in for questioning. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court of Oyer and Terminer for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. The first case brought to the special court was Bridget Bishop, who was an older woman known for her gossipy habits and her promiscuity. When asked if she committed witchcraft, Bishop responded, I am as innocent as the child unborn, which is a really weird thing to say. I love the quotes from Salem because a lot of them are really like kind of cryptic and weird. Uh, the defense must not have been convincing because she was found guilty, and on June 10th, she became the first person hanged on what was later called Gallows Hill. I believe you can still visit Gallows Hill. Um, Salem is called something else now. I can't remember. The Salem town is actually where the witch uh, hangs happened. Aren't actually in the town Salem now. It's something nearby. But yeah, it's you can still visit it. Um, I think of it like sort of the mecca for American occultists. I've never been, but it's something I would love to do. So after the first hanging, five more people were hanged in July, another five hanged in August, and eight in September. Seven other accused witches died in jail, and Giles Corey was crushed to death after refusing to enter a plea at his arraignment. Uh, this is the guy that is said to have said more weight as they're putting rocks on the crushing plate that is slowly um, making it so that he cannot breathe.
Um, two of the victims were children. As an interesting side note, in 1967, the Massachusetts General Court declared a national day of fasting for the tragedy of the Salem Witch Trials, which were later deemed unlawful. Financial restitution was also offered to living heirs in the year 1711. The tragedy of these events has lived on throughout the ages, inspiring many different artists in its wake. There's tons of people that tell about uh, the Salem Witch Trials way better than I do. Um, there's The Crucible. Um, there's all kinds of movies now with this kind of imagery and sort of mimics the story. Uh, the Crucible was written by Arthur Miller in 1953 and uses witch hunting as a modern allegory for uh, the communist witch hunts in the 1950s. Witch hunting is something that happens today in modern times, but is also something that happens allegorically constantly as well. Um, I thought that in the age of the pandemic, with fear-mongering and divisive politics being spouted, is a steady stream of cacophony and chaos to the masses that I just wanted to remind everyone that we're all humans trying our best to get through our incarnation. Please be courteous to others and their beliefs, and if you're having trouble understanding another person's opinions or point of view, then at least take your time to educate yourself on all the different aspects of what's going on. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. This has been a fun episode. I hope that we could do some more stuff like this soon. Uh, I love all of you, and you're all beautiful. Mwah, mwah, mwah.